and praise the Lord, everybody. Praise, Lord. praise God. It's so good to be here in section 11, and you have 11 churches, and Brother Bailey is your presbyter, and it's good to be in the church that he pastors. Praise God. And Brother uh, Maynard, I'm certainly glad for the invitation. I really didn't come that far. I think some of you drove further than I did. It's about 65 miles or 70 miles to, to Madison, but uh, I can't really say that I enjoyed the trip because I got lost and it took me a whole hour after I got in Rockford to find the church here. Praise God. But uh, I'm enjoying this now. I'm really enjoying it. I just appreciate the opportunity. Again, I want to say I really appreciate the opportunity to be here with you people. Now, I've been asked to talk about Sunday school tomorrow and today, and Sunday school is a subject that I really do like to speak on. Uh, right after I received the Holy Ghost, I was uh, uh, in my early 20s. I think I was 21 years of age, and I became the superintendent of the primary class in Henderson, Texas. And I taught the primaries, and I really enjoyed it. And then I started teaching the youth class a little later on, and, of course, now I'm teaching the adult class, and I'm enjoying every moment of it. I really do like Sunday morning. Sunday morning, uh, even though I really like Sunday night, Sunday morning is the service in our church in which we designate it to be totally evangelistic. Totally evangelistic. And the reason why is because we can always get more people that is, more visitors to Sunday school than any other service. And if this be your case, then you'd be wise to make it evangelistic. And so we do make Sunday school real evangelistic. Uh, I am not noted to be a real short-winded preacher, but uh, I'll try to stay on one subject. Sometimes I get on a lot of different subjects, and I have to bring myself back. Uh, I gave a lot of thought and prayed a lot about this meeting, and I just have so many things I'd like to say. So I'm not really apologizing before I get started, but I, I, I do have a lot of things that I want to say here tonight that I believe that will be highly beneficial to our service and then, of course, to you as an individual in, in days to come. We trust that it will be. I'd like for you to stand at the reading of the Word of the Lord, if you would. Like I say, I'll, I'll try to stick with my subject, Brother, Brother Bailey, and uh, we'll, we'll try to be a blessing as much as possible to each person here. Uh, if a preacher doesn't stay with his subject, you, he can preach all over the Bible, and you really don't know what he's preached on. You know, and It's like a plaque that I bought our secretary, and she put it in her office. The plaque says, it's hard to do nothing because you never know when you're finished. And, <clears throat> But I'd like, to, I'd like to read from the 85th Psalm. We have heard several of our ministers here tonight say, this is revival country. you really believe it's revival country? Yeah. Praise God. I'm, I'm beginning to believe that myself. I feel it here. I really feel it here. And I want to talk about revival tonight, uh, more specifically revival in the Sunday school. But we want to talk about revival in general. You can't have revival in Sunday school without having revival in a church. And Sunday school is more than just a program. And I think uh, quite often we 
we look at Sunday school as being the quiet uh, time of our of our teaching and worship and and uh, the less excitable time outside of the uh, particular promotions we have. I do not feel that this should be the case. I really don't. It's a good time to give altar calls. It's a good time to pray people through the Holy Ghost. It's a good time to baptize people in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I haven't really tallied up the books for our, our church in Madison this year, but last year in our Sunday school alone, we baptized over one person per week on Sunday morning. Praise God. And quite often we had classes coming upstairs. We would uh, cut the adult class short, and we would have a baptismal service where children and young people, and then, of course, adults would go down in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We baptized, I believe it was 53, 52 or 53 out of the Sunday school last year. Now, when I saw last year, it's 1982. 1983, I don't have the totals yet. But we baptized a good number of people in the Sunday school. Uh, Psalm 85, verse 6, the psalmist said, Wilt thou not revive us again, that thy people may rejoice in thee? And we have the word revive. Revival comes from the word revive. The word revival really means to live again. Revival, contrary to what we sometimes think, revival was intended for God's people. People who do not have life in the Lord cannot live again because they've never had life. A typical example of revival in a physical sense would, uh, would be if you went on a vacation, let's say in the wintertime in which plants seem to really dry out because of the low humidity in your house, and you come home and your big Boston fern is dried right down to the roots almost. And you go and get some fresh water, and you get a bottle and you mist the uh, leaves and you pour the water on the roots, and a couple of days later you see green showing in that plant. You have revived that plant. When that plant is dead altogether, it cannot be revived. But revival is for those who have life. But it's a fresh touch of life. It's the wells of everlasting water of God's Holy Spirit springing up within you. Revival. Let's say it together. Revival. Revival. Let's say it again. Revival. Revival. Now you may be seated. Revival is not just something that comes as a result of talking about it. Uh, <clears throat> I was uh, in a church three or four years ago, and they went into a brand new building uh, on a Sunday before Easter. Now, they had been in the building then one week, and I came there on a Saturday night. And man, we had a great service, a great move of the Lord. They were expecting 150 in Sunday school the very next morning, which would be Easter morning. Well, I caught the plane out the next morning, and headed back to Madison before they held their service. But uh, 
what happened was that after I had preached that night, several people found their way to the altar, and then the pastor calls everybody around the front, and uh, uh, we began to pray and worship, and the power of the Lord just came down in such a mighty way, and faith was welling up in people. And you know what happens when you, you get full of faith, you get real bold. The pastor got up and said, uh, <clears throat> Why? He said, We're planning on having 150 here in the morning. He said, uh, I don't I don't know how you feel. He said, I, I believe that we can have 175. Everybody say 175. So, <clears throat> so he said, uh, 175. So let's say it, would you? 175. And uh, well, he talked to him for a while and he said, uh, You know, uh, really, he said, uh, 175? Why? He said, That's an insult to think that God can do no more than that. I believe we can have 200. He said, Everybody say 200. 200. And he said, let's say 200 again. 200! And man, a couple of people danced in the spirit there. You know, they were getting excited. I was uh, kind of standing back in the back, and it was, it was quite, a, quite a thing for me, quite an experience, see? People really getting excited about it. And, and so uh, after a while, he kept on talking, and he, he convinced himself that they ought to be able to have 250. So everybody say 250! 250! And he said, let's say it again. 250! And, boy, a couple of people took out running and uh, ran down the middle aisle and back, and, uh, and uh, everybody started clapping their hands, and, and we had church all over again. We just started all over again, sung some courses, and he was feeling real bold in the spirit, and he walked up, and he said, Well, that's, uh, I believe we have 250 in the adult class alone. Everybody say, 250 in the adult class. So he said, Let's say it again, 250 in the adult class. And, well, well, he said, how many would that be then? Well, he figured that must be about 400 in Sunday school. And so <coughs> after a while, they, everybody was excited, and, and so they raised it to 500. Well, <laughs> you know, quite frankly, I was glad I was leaving. <laughs> you know, really, because I got to thinking now, wait a minute. <clears throat> it all sounds great, but you see, you don't have 500 people simply because you say 500. And uh, uh, he said, now you call me the next afternoon, John Grant, and I'm going to give you a good report. Well, next afternoon, I hated to, I, I hated to call him, really. I, I hated to. So. <clears throat> but I mustered up enough courage, and I gave him a call. And I said, how did it go? He said, well, not too good. And when I, uh, well, I felt so, so bad, you know. And I didn't know what to say to him. I said, well, how many did you have? He said, I, I wish you wouldn't ask. And I said, well, uh, he said, well, <laughs> I'll tell you what, he said. <clears throat> uh, we had 111. And a long silence. Silence, pause there. I didn't know what to say, you know. What could I say? He said, but I'll tell you what, tonight, Sunday night, he says, you wait till after service. I'm going to give it to him for sure. See? And so <clears throat> I'm sure that he, uh, uh, I'm not pointing out the weakness of a minister for the sake of you who are not ministers, feel that ministers are weak, because I want to point out something in you, your own life. Uh, and I'm sure he really blessed them out. 
one Sunday night. I would not have wanted to be there. Uh, <laughs> I was glad I was in Madison several hundred miles away. But sometimes when things don't go right in our lives, we have a tendency to blame other people. When the <clears throat> You see, it takes a whole lot of planning and work and prayer to build a church, to build a class, to build a Sunday school, to build anything in the kingdom of God. You don't get it just by calling out vigorously some big number. It just doesn't come that way. I've noticed uh, uh, churches, they seem to go up high and then they go down, and they go up high and they go down. They go up high and they go down. It's like the sparrow that flies uh, through the air. He beats his wings as rapidly as possible, and then all of a sudden he pauses momentarily. And when he pauses, he starts plummeting downward. He can't glide, see. Little short wings and heavy body. He just can't glide. So uh, he catches himself after he goes down about a foot, and uh, he beats those wings again, gets them going, and picks up momentum, he reaches his high point again, <clears throat> then he rests a couple of beats, and down he goes. And you see, this is the way a lot of churches operate. A lot of people run their lives that way. Uh, they just seem to get high in special services, like revival services, where they're on fire, I mean blistering hot. Uh, they can do anything they want to do for God, but then they seem to take that rest in which they plummet downward. But my plea to you tonight is, why don't you learn to constantly keep the wings of the church in motion so they can fly like uh, the eagle or fly like the goose or the duck? that just continues to go and build momentum and climb higher and higher and higher. God help us to understand that inasmuch as special services are important and Sunday school drives are important, that uh, every service and every session should be a special one in which God can move and God will move. Now, in this particular race that we're w running, that is a race with time to win the world, the truth of the matter is we're really losing in this race. You know, if I were to ask you tonight how many of you would uh, prefer the Lord to wait uh, quite a bit longer, uh, or would you prefer the Lord to come tonight, most of you would raise your hand and say, Wait, Brother Grant, wait. And if I were to ask you why, you would say, because we want to win more souls. But the truth of the matter is, people are, are being born and they're dying faster than we're winning them. As far as numbers are concerned, with our present methods of winning the loss of the Lord and our rate in preaching the gospel, it would have been better if Jesus would have come 100 years ago rather than now or in the future. Now, I'm talking about with our present method of reaching the lost. 
Now the gospel of the kingdom will be preached into all the world for witness. And I believe that somehow all of God's people collectively will get a vision of what needs to be done in this last hour, even though it may demand certain changes in their lifestyle, certain changes in the structure of the church to get the job done. Because if Jesus said it's going to be done, you know, I kind of think he knows what he's talking about. And I believe that it will be done. In 1978, we had 4 billion people in the world as of April 1978. 1980, two years later, we had 4.5 billion people. 1983, the first part of 1983, the world surpassed the 4.75 billion. By the end of 1984, there will be 5 billion people in our world. Now, that's a lot of people. I mean, that's a lot of people. Now, I'm not saying that I believe that every person in this world will be one for God. Because I do not believe that. I believe the records bear, as far as the book of Revelation is concerned, that a lot of people will not be one for the Lord. But nevertheless, it is our primary responsibility to preach the gospel to them, to get the word of the Lord to them. Now, inasmuch that we do not presently have any service in our church or any other method for reaching the lost better than the Sunday school, and we really don't, because more people attend United Pentecostal churches on Sunday morning than in any other services we have, including the special revival services that we have, then we must make a plea at this present time to all of our Sunday school teachers, regardless of what age you're teaching, to allow God to use you to really bring the Word of God to somebody. Now, <clears throat> when I stood uh, up tonight to come into the, to, to the uh, podium here, uh, all of a sudden I got a kind of a, a dizzy feeling. Now, the reason why I have this because I've had a cough now for about a month. Now, for some reason, I'm not for sure why, but all of us have certain deficiencies in our bodies. For some reason, uh, I've always had the bad lungs, my respiratory tract. I, I've been very susceptible to pneumonia. Four or five years ago, I had pneumonia three times in one year and bronchial pneumonia one time. Now, that's, that's being sick a lot. And I've been coughing now for about a month. Now, with certain sicknesses, there are certain symptoms that you have you know if you miss uh, if you have to call up on your job and and uh, uh, you inform your employer that you're sick uh, uh, most likely he or she will say well, what's wrong with you well you say i've got the flu how do you know you have the flu because there are certain symptoms that go with the flu virus you know you get a fever you get dizzy you're nauseated or a headache and you say well i've got the flu so there are certain symptoms that go along with certain diseases. Now the reason why that I have to watch myself very carefully is because that I know that if I don't, I will catch pneumonia. And when I get to feeling dizzy, when I stand up as a result of not being able to breathe properly, then I know, wait just a minute, you're going to have to take care of yourself. This is a symptom that comes with pneumonia. 
After a while, you're coughing. You have a deep hurt all the way from the center of your chest to the back, to your back. And then you, 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 at night, you perspire. You have a heavy fever. Uh, you wake up in the morning. You have a splitting headache. Uh, you get up. You're dizzy. Uh, I know I have pneumonia then. That, that, those are symptoms that go along with it. And then in the night, you can't hardly breathe, and you're tossing and tumbling. And if you, if you lay on your side a certain way, uh, your lungs are just not capable of, of, of taking enough of the air. And, and so you have to twist and turn. And, and I know what this is all about. And you know certain sicknesses that you have. There are certain symptoms that come with it. Well, did you know that it is also true in our spiritual life that there are certain sicknesses that come upon the child of God. And he uh, largely allows it to continue and it continues to grow and he gets, spiritually speaking, sicker and sicker and sicker simply because he does not identify the symptoms and he does not relate that to a particular spiritual disease. Now, I want to first talk about the symptoms of no revival. You see, we may have some people here that feel like they have revival, truly have revival in their life, and perhaps they don't have revival at all. Because, you see, revival is not just the ability to, to say 500 vigorously. It's not just the ability to stand up and, and, and perhaps run in the Spirit. It's not just the ability to clap your hands loudly or sing loudly. Now, I believe if you have revival, you truly have revival, you will have life, and life has a way of changing you, and it has a way of identifying itself in your relationship with the Lord and with each other. The first symptom that I'd like to call your attention to is definitely the absence of worship. If in the event in your spiritual life there is no spontaneous worship, you have a symptom of no revival. Now, we're not just talking about church services, brothers and sisters. We're talking about individual, personal lives. You see, I'm a firm believer that when the Apostle Paul spoke of praying without ceasing and also spoke of lifting up holy hands everywhere without wrath or doubt, he was talking about a person that had the fire of God rejuvenating them daily, constantly, over and over and over and over and over and over. Now, I believe that every Christian, every morning, when they spring out of bed, they should fall to their knees and start praying and calling upon the name of the Lord. Then I believe they should pray until they can stop praying. This is a surety, then, that they will be worshiping and praising the Lord without ceasing. Now, just check yourself. How often from your lips do you hear the words come? I praise you, Lord. I thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Glory to God. Praise the name of the Lord. And I'm not saying this boastfully, but I do a lot of traveling alone, and it's an outstanding place for me to just worship God and, and praise the Lord. And all the way down to Rockford tonight, you know, I had a good time with the Lord. I didn't have to wait for an apostolic service. I didn't have to wait till the piano started playing and the, the drum started beating. No, no, no. A thousand times no. Praise God. Lifting my hands, praising the Lord. The heavenly language in the other tongue flowing. I love you, Jesus. I worship you, Jesus. I praise you, God. I appreciate you, God. 
And you who work uh, in secular jobs and such, you say, I can't do it. Oh, I know you can because I've done it before. Now, I'm not saying going around just showing off and, you know, this is one thing about the, the charismatic movement that kind of turns me the wrong way because I think a lot of those people do a lot of things just for show. And some things seem to be so uh, flaky and superficial when it's done only for show. But I can assure you that there's opportunities always in which you can praise the Lord. You can praise the Lord. I say you can praise the Lord. But you see, sometimes we get up in the morning, we haven't prayed, we haven't sought God, and, and so we're not worshiping the Lord, and we're running late, and we jump in the car, and we head out down the freeway, and somebody pulls out in front of us, and we almost turn the car over, and we get in the other lane, there's some people there, and, and this old man that's coming out in the lane here, he won't move over, and, and, and now I know that I'm going to punch in late, and we pull off at an exit, and we, we come down to a stop, and here comes a train by, and we're so frustrated, and then when we get on the job, we got nasty attitudes. Then when we come home, you know, our lip is vacuuming the floor. And somebody says, well, how'd your day go? Well, not too good. I remember one time my, my mother introduced me to a sister in the supermarket. And, and uh, I said, how are you today? Well, I shouldn't even ask her. She said, oh, not too good. You know how it is with us Christians. <clears throat> Now, I couldn't help but think about this. And I, when she, you know, I, I said, oh, and I shouldn't have said that either. And she said, yes. She said, you know, over where I work, nobody likes me, so they give me all the dirty work, and, and they, I get pushed around. But she said, you know, it's to be expected. That's the way it is, you know. Paul said, every man that shall live godly in this present world shall suffer the persecution of the flesh. Now, I certainly, uh, I, I have uh, my share of persecution and suffering. And she said, uh, you know how this old world is. It just gets, keeps getting worse and worse and worse. And, and uh, you know, I was feeling so sorry for her. I was about to cry. <laughs> I thought, now, <clears throat> if I were the devil, I think I'd jump on her too. <clears throat> I mean, she would be a real easy one to lick, wouldn't she? Wouldn't she really? Now, you think about it for a moment. And you see, if you don't have worship... You set yourself up for the devil. Praise God. The Bible says that the Lord inhabits the praise of His people. And if you want to ward the devil off, the best thing to ward the devil off with is just a real good offense of praise. I love you, Jesus. I worship you, God. Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. And when there is not a spontaneous flow of worship from your lips and from your hands, then you have a symptom of no revival. Now the second symptom that I want to talk about is stiffness between people. I'm really amazed sometimes at, at, at how, uh, you know, stiff our relationship can be with a brother or sister. Now, I don't mean to tell all the woes, you know, that happened, but I took the church in Madison, and you know there was a brother that came up to me. He actually had the audacity after I took the church. And we were talking one time, he said, Well, I haven't even shaken hands with that man in ten years. I said, You mean both of you are 
are members of this church? He said, yeah. Now, you know, that kind of stuff is like a cheap movie. It's like a dirty, filthy movie. And I said, well, I'll tell you, if you remain a member of this church, you're going to start shaking his hand. And I said, now, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. When the service is over, I'm going to step down, and you go with me to the front door of the building. And we're going to stand there until he comes by. I marched him down there. I'm in business. Listen, I'm in this for keeps. This is no game. Stiffness between people. I asked him, why do you feel this way? Well, I had a little business deal. He said, I don't trust him anymore. In fact, I found out one thing. You, you're better off to not do business with each other. Now, I've heard a lot of Christians make that statement. I've got to stand here to tell you, I think that is horrible. I mean, just plain horrible. If you can't trust your brothers and sisters in the Lord, tell me, friend, who can you trust? You may say, well, I've been ripped off a few times. Well, listen, if you did business exclusively with the people of the world, you're going to get ripped off. But you see, people get stiff in a relationship with each other. One sister told me, she said, Oh, I don't have any problem. I can tolerate her. Well, now, Jesus never spoke of toleration. He spoke of love. And there's a vast difference between toleration and love. Jesus even said, Love your enemies. <clears throat> now, that's what he said. Love your enemies. Enemies. And when stiffness be comes between you and your brother, then this is why people quite often, they become judgmental and they start gossiping and sharing detrimental information about their brothers and sisters with other people. This is a sickness. It's a symptom of no revival. And these things ought not to be. Now, Another thing is that people become materialistic-minded. I mean materialistic-minded. Now, please understand, every person here who drives a new automobile or every person here who lives in a new house, that does not denote that they're materialistic-minded. See? Now, if you will turn with me to Philippians, the second chapter, there is a, a scripture that the Apostle Paul writes or addresses to uh, <coughs> that particular church. And uh, I'd like to read it for you. <clears throat> the third chapter, pardon me, Philippians 3. <coughs> Notice what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 3, 17. Brethren... Be followers together of me, and mark them which walk so as ye have us for an ensample or example. Verse 18, For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. Now, it, it seems strange that the church can have enemies to the cross. 
I mean, the very thing that saved you, you can become an enemy to it. The very thing that put you in the church, you can be the greatest enemy to that. Now, can you believe that? Now, notice what Paul says, all right? <clears throat> he says, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly. Now, whose God is their belly, the word belly here is taken from the very same word that's found over in John 7, where he that believeth on me, as the Scripture said, out of his belly or his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. In other words, their sole purpose or aim in this life was to bring satisfaction or gratification to themselves. They were selfish individuals. Now notice what he said. And whose glory is in their shame. Now whose glory is in their shame simply means that they do things that are wrong and they brag about it. Now for an example, you know somebody does you wrong and you pick up the phone and you call them up and you turn a wrong deed for a wrong deed and then you call somebody up and say, oh, guess what I just did? I called them up and I gave them a piece of my, my mind. <clears throat> See, you begin to glory in your shame. You begin to fight carnality with carnality. The last part of this, however, he says, who mind earthly things. In other words, they become materialistic-minded. That simply means that they're not generous givers uh, when they come to the house of God. You know, uh, uh, listen, it's all right to own cars. Just don't let cars own you. It's all right to own homes. Just don't let homes own you. It's all right to, to own nice things because if you practice stewardship the way the Bible tells you that you'll practice it, God will bless you. And don't become envious of some brother or some sister who is being blessed. But you can always tell when you become materialistic-minded. You see, those cars began to own you. And those homes began to own you. And they began to dictate to you. So the needs of the missionaries and the tithing and such all drops off as a result. You see, this is a symptom of no revival. They become materialistic-minded. There was a survey made of revival movements here in our country. And after the revival movement ceased to, to, to be what they were, and they lost their fervor, they lost their momentum in reaching the lost, the survey concluded that the reason why that they lost it was that they took the invisible and abandoned it and exchanged it for the visible. And so church became no more than a place in which we try to beautify so that we can brag on it. Oh, listen, brothers and sisters, I'd rather rip up the red carpet at Calvary Gospel Church and put sawdust on, on the floors and have people wallowing in the sawdust and win the loss to the Lord than to sit on padded pews with red carpet on the floor and have nobody converted to the saving power and name of our Lord and Savior. Well, I appreciate everything that God has done for us. Listen, I don't want to pastor that kind of church. And if that kind of a facility takes away my fervor and I replace the invisible with the visible, I say, let it go, 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 let it go. People become materialistic-minded. This is a symptom. And then another symptom is that they become dependent upon entertainment rather than real spiritual worship. <clears throat> You know, there is a department in your church in which you can have trouble with easily. I don't know if the pastors here recognize that, but that's in the area of music. You know, it's so easy 
for competition to set in in, in music. <clears throat> I know when I, I took the church in Madison, uh, <clears throat> after a few weeks, uh, assistant pastor uh, came and he told me, he said, now, we haven't had choir here for some time because when the pastor left, uh, he just set everybody down. And he said, look, we don't want anybody singing until we get another pastor. They had certain songs, and this is my song, and nobody else sings it, see? And uh, because I do such a good job with it, <clears throat> you know? <clears throat> you heard anything like that? <clears throat> Only in Madison, I'll tell you. <clears throat> but listen, we need the life of God in our preaching. We need the life of God in our choir singing. We need the life of God in everything we do. And when we get in the classroom and we're telling a story, listen, it's more than theatrics, friend. It's the power of the Holy Ghost. And you need to lay on your face and pray until God runs out your fingertips and God runs out your tongue and God runs out your eyes. People need to feel what you feel. And they need to be able to see what you see. So when we become dependent upon entertainment more so than the Spirit of the Lord, this is a symptom of no revival. And then last, an absence of true conversions. You know, <clears throat> I was preaching. I preached quite a few revivals in my day, as most of these pastors have. And I've gone places and people are, you know, wallowing around the floor praying. How come we can't? We need a breakthrough. We need a breakthrough. We need a breakthrough. What's wrong? What's wrong? What's wrong? Maybe in your own personal life you've had that to happen. You know, I believe, I personally believe that, that the church having converts is a natural process of the spiritual kingdom of God. Did you know that if a couple gets married... If a couple gets married and they can't have a child, it's because of some unnatural thing. Because when God put it in the reproductive cycle where it is a very natural thing for children to be born. And I don't want you to take this statement wrong. But usually couples have to guard against having one child after another if they're healthy and nothing's wrong with them. And yet in the spiritual kingdom sometimes, you know, we're wallowing all over the church. When what come we can? Oh, all we need to do is just be the Christians that the Bible tells us we need to be. We need to be healthy and alive in God and people will be born into His kingdom. Let's lift our hand now and let's praise the Lord. Oh, hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Now, when true revival comes, revival cures, number one, the social problem. It takes away the social status of individuals in the church. Everybody is on equal ground. There's no big I's and little U's. There is a common commune among God's people where they can shake each other's hand and love each other. It's a time in which uh, the cars that uh, have to 
to be drug into the parking lots almost, uh, can sit beside the Cadillacs, and everybody is on equal ground because everybody loves everybody. It re revival cures the social problem. Revival cures the feud problem. I say revival cures the feud problem. Retribution is something that revival brings about. When true revival comes, you'll find people calling each other on the phones and haven't talked to people in years. They want to be with them. They love them. They, they just feel that they owe something to them. And, and so revival cures the feud problem. All the fussing and fighting and such that people do, it is quickly dissolved when revival comes. Revival also cures the financial problem where the people are materialistic-minded. They become very generous and they begin to give. And they give to all the needs of the church. They support the, the ministry with tithes and offerings and the Sunday school and, and so forth. On down, the missionaries and everything. At the same time, God is blessing their households and, and they are receiving the abundant flow of God's materialistic blessings. Why? Because... They are living in a state of revival. Revival cures the empty pew problem. I say the empty pew problem. I say the empty pew problem. Now, I, I really believe this. While I, I, I don't want you to take this out of context, but I believe that I can go in my office and close the door and pray more people into the church building than what you can do if you're not praying and you're just out knocking on doors without the Spirit of the Lord. Now, I really believe that. Then how much more can we do if we're rubbing shoulders with people and inviting them when the Spirit of the Lord is moving upon us? Now, I'd like for you to turn to Luke, the first chapter. We're going to read the text for the beginning of our session in the morning, our teaching session. <coughs> Revival cures the generation gap problem. You young people ever feel that your, your parents... They just don't understand you. You know, there's always been a generation gap. Hasn't there been? Oh, when I was the age of you teenagers, I thought my mother was an old fuddy-duddy and she didn't know anything about teenagers, teenagers. I really did. I thought she was so out of tune with the world. I was embarrassed quite often when my mother would come up with some of her her uh, statements that... that, that, that Prove to me beyond a shadow of a doubt that, that she just was not in tune with life at all. John the Baptist came upon the scene. And the scripture tells us in verse 13 of Luke 1, But the angel said unto him, Fear not, Zacharias, for thy prayer is heard, and thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son. Thou shalt call his name John. And thou shalt have joy and gladness, and many shall rejoice at his birth. And he shall be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. And he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost, even from his mother's womb. And many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God. And he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elias to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, and to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. You know, surprisingly, when it was prophesied that John was coming, and when the angel heralded his coming, 
The real thing that revival was to cure was the generation gap. That when revival comes, it will cause the hearts of the fathers to turn back to their children and the hearts of the children to turn back to their parents. Now, that's what revival was to do. And you will find that in every revival, emphasis is placed upon reaching the lost and specifically reaching children. The theme of our Sunday school, National Sunday School, this year, Save Our Children. I believe this is definite proof that true revival is coming to the United Pentecostal Church. Now, we're not just talking about some big Sunday school drive where everybody just jumps up and down and shouts and we try to get a great big number. While all of those things are very, very important, but we're talking about a true burdened heart that looks upon the needs of the young and declares, I want to minister to those needs. And then the hearts of a child that sets that parent or that adult in a revered state and desires to pattern their lives after their adults. Now that's what the revival in the days of John was to do. Did it do that? Yes. Now why all this? The Lord said to make ready a, pe a people for him. To make ready a people for him. Now, what I'd like for you to do as we get into the closing remarks of this message, I'd like for you to turn with me to the first chapter, not the first chapter, the first epistle of Peter, the fourth chapter. <coughs> and we want to talk about the starting of true revival in your life, in your Sunday school, in your church, the starting of true revival. 1 Peter 4.17, <coughs> the Bible says, For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And, it first be and if it first began at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Now, <clears throat> the Bible to say that God, when we come to Him, wipes all of our past out. And He starts keeping record after we come into the house of the Lord. Well, I happen to know that it is a known fact according to the Scripture that even after we come into the house of the Lord, God still forgives sin. Now, I think taking the Scripture in the true context in which it's written that the Apostle Peter was saying or applying the Scripture like this. You see, there are times in which God wants to judge the world. He must judge the world. Why? Because as it is written, the soul that sinneth, it shall surely die. But when God desires to judge any society, when he decides to judge any nation, 
when he decides to judge any family, the first thing that he does, he looks down upon those who are called by his name. And he begins to point out certain sicknesses or deficiencies that they have. And he begins to judge first in his own assembly among his own people. I personally believe that right now America is ripe for the judgments of God. And some of the crises that we have had in recent years have been no more than the sprinkling of God's judgments upon us to forewarn us that judgment is inevitable, that judgment is coming. Listen, America cannot continue in its state of apathy and apostasy and continue with God to bless it. Judgment is coming to the United States of America if revival does not come. Now, knowing that judgment is at hand and knowing that not only in America, but according to the book of Revelation, judgment is coming to the entire planet Earth. The 4.75 billion people on this planet Earth have reached the point in which they were in the days of Noah. And Jesus said, as it were in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. Man, for they shall be eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. And they were doing all of this until the day that Noah entered into the ark. Now, if all of this be true, then God is looking down upon His own people and He is trying His best to work out all of the deficiencies that we have in us. And the reason why, because before God will judge this world, He must first have a measuring stick in which people can measure or equate true righteousness. There must be an epistle walking the streets, uh, living in the factories. There's got to be people that, that, uh, that walk the halls of the condominiums uh, and walk in the, uh, the quietness of the parks uh, that know how to live godly and dress holy and talk godly and sing holy. Now, if God is wanting to judge this world, He's going to look down upon every person that is Holy Ghost filled, and He's going to first start His judgment there. And this is the reason why that we are finding such horrid condemnation falling upon us at times and feeling so guilty in the presence of God because of our lack of conviction. You see, before God could judge the antediluvian world, and the Bible says that God knew that it had to be judged. Why? Because the very imagination of their mind were evil continually. The people had reached a point in which they could not even think of anything that was wholesome or anything that was right. You drive down the freeways today or drive down city streets and all the bumper stickers and things you see leads us to believe that this is a dirty, filthy, rotten, nasty, vulgar world that we're living in. And it displays the imagination of the minds of people on theater screens and television, uh, uh, television sets and such. This is a filthy world that we live in. I said it's a filthy world that we live in. And God looked down and said, My spirit shall not always strive with man. 
And then the Bible tells us when God looked down and saw all of this. He said, now I'm going to judge the world. I'll give the world 120 years. Then the Scripture goes on to say, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. God started a process in the heart of Noah. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Now the reason why the Scripture calls our attention to that is this, that Noah had to be the man that would be righteous. Noah had to be the man that would stand up as the measuring stick by which God would measure all the world before He judged them. This is the reason why we find in Hebrews, the 11th chapter, the Bible tells us this concerning, concerning that world. Verse 5 of Hebrews 11, By faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death and was not found because God had translated him. For before his translation he had this testimony that he pleased God. But without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. By faith Noah being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by which he condemned the world. Noah condemned the world by doing what? By doing what God wanted to do and living the way that God wanted him to live. Now there is a secret in all of this. And then, of course, the Bible goes on to say, and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. Which is by faith. Now, Noah was a preacher of righteousness, but the Bible says that Noah condemned the world. Now, the Bible doesn't say, however, that he condemned the world by just standing out on the street corner someplace and say, Hey, all you sinners, you're going to hell! Listen to me out there! God's going to destroy the world, and you're going to burn in the lake of fire as well as drown in this water. Now, that's not how he condemned the world. The Bible says, because he prepared an ark to the saving of his household. In other words, Noah found grace in the eyes of God. When God says, I will destroy the world, and he looked down, and he began to get Noah right, and Noah then found grace in the eyes of God. Now you may say, Pastor Grant, what in the world are you trying to tell us? The greatest evangelistic tool that you have and will ever have is your ability to find a place, a real place, in which you can cry and pray over the deficiencies of your spiritual life to the point that when you get up and walk the street, people will see you and know that there is genuinely something different inside of you. You can preach to people all you want to preach, but there's nothing that will condemn them and convict them like a Holy Ghost filled, dedicated, consecrated, conviction filled life. Now let me give you a couple of examples that I feel are noteworthy. I remember several years ago, I just felt led by God because of the absence of revival that we were experiencing that we just needed to go on a whole week of just fasting and praying. And so as a result, we dimmed the lights in the church. And, of course, we do this real often, but I, sp I felt a special need. And, and so uh, we dimmed the lights real dim, and, and uh, people just came in every night. We prayed from 7 o'clock to around midnight. 
People lay on their face and cry and pray and seek God. I want to be productive, God. Make me a better Christian, Lord. Take all the things in my life out that's not good. I rededicate myself. I submit myself, oh God. I give myself to you afresh. I give myself to you anew. I remember after about two days of praying there, I remember at this particular night, I think it was Wednesday night, the phone rang. Somebody answered the phone. And so they came and got me. I was down praying. said, there's a gentleman on the phone that wants to talk to you. So I went and I began to talk with him. He identified himself as a man by the name of Dudley Snyder. He said, I, I'm over here at the a phone booth across uh, from your church in, in the parking lot at, the, at the, the, the shopping center. And he said, I've got to talk to you. And of course, I didn't really want to talk with a man that night. I was busy praying and seeking the Lord. And I, I just kind of wanted to be alone. But he said, Pastor, I've got to talk to you. So in the church he came. He walked in the church and it was trembling and and so he said, you know, I, 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 I just feel that I, I, I need to pray. I, I, don't, know, I don't know why. And I, I said, Dudley, uh, uh, have, have you ever been here to church before? He said, no. I said, uh, you know anybody here? He said, well, no, I don't know no soul here. I said, well, well, what happened? He said, I don't know. He said, I, I don't know. He said, you know, I, I, I just walked by the church and I saw the sign. I got the strangest feeling that came over me. He said, I don't know what it is, but he said, there, there's something just came over me. And he said, it was tingling me. And, and I got this sick feeling, and I, I thought I should run. So he said, I ran over here to the shopping center. I looked back up on the hill. And, and he said, when I looked back up on the hill, he said, tears just came to my eyes. I don't know why, he said, because, you see, he, he, he said, I, I, I've been to church before. I never felt like this. And my, he looked around and said, what are all these people doing? And he listened for a while, and. Here's a brother over here who was pouring his heart out to God. I very well remember it. And he was praying, God, I thank you for bringing me from a world of sin. But, oh, God, I don't want to fail you now. Lord Jesus, you know I haven't been on fire the way I ought to be on fire. Dudley, listen to that man. You know what he did? He made his way right down to the altar without anybody telling him they need to pray. He knelt upon his knees. You know what he did? He pulled a big boot off that he had. And out of that boot, he pulled a big, long knife, and it lay on the altar. I went up there, and I said, what's this, what's this all about? He said, well, you wouldn't believe it, but he said, you know, uh, I, I had planned on killing someone tonight. He told me the name of the man. He said, I, I guess this is this this was my salvation. He said, I, I never dreamed that I'd be laying that knife on the altar here. God has saved me from perhaps a life in prison. He lifted his hands there. We took him and baptized him. The Lord filled him with the gift of the Holy Ghost. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Why do you think he felt condemned over his sins? Because there was a church house full of people that were laying on their faces before God, feeling the hard condemnation of their deficiencies. Listen, brothers and sisters, when Paul said there is now therefore no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus, the criterion of all of that is this, who walk not according to the flesh, but walk after the Spirit. Oh, listen, when we get a hold of God and lay on our faces before Him, prostrate before Him, pouring our heart out to Him, crying over our deficiencies, God, I'm not the best Sunday school teacher that this church has, but I sure want to be one. I'm not having conviction in my adult Bible class, but I sure want to have it, God. And whatever it takes, God, fierce me 
through with your word. Talk to me, God. Take my tongue and use it, Lord. Oh, God. You see, this tongue is able to sell furniture and talk about cars, but I want it to be able to talk about the grace of God and the power of the Holy Ghost. Use me, God. Use me. Purge me, God. Let judgment begin right here at the house of God. And listen, when you begin to feel bad about your deficiencies, you voice it down. The world will feel bad about theirs. And I am a personal believer that the reason why we have not seen revival, the way that God wants us to see revival, is because we have not yet reached the place in which we feel that we have some deficiencies. Oh, a holy and thou attitude will not get the job done. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I want to tell you something else that happened this same time. I remember an elderly lady who walked in the church the next night after we baptized Dudley. She had been a German Lutheran all of her life. She's in her 80s. Her son was filled with the Holy Ghost in our church. He brought her out to the prayer meeting. That was not a service. And, you know, you would think that he shouldn't have brought her. And I would, if he'd asked me, I'd have told him not to bring his mother. But he did. I was uh, praying up on the front, and I looked around. I don't know what caused me to look around. I saw this elderly woman come in. She was a fairly large woman. She began to look around. Her son was already down front, pounding on the altar. And I could see that this woman was quite disturbed, so I went back where she was, and I began to talk to her. She said, you know, I've never been to a church service like this. I said, well, man, it's not really a, a scheduled service. We're just here praying. She said, you think I could be seated? So I said, sure. So I seated her by where Brother Jenkins is, is seated here in our own auditorium. And I didn't really know what to do, but I decided, well, I, I just guess I'll just leave her alone here and go back to praying, talk with her for a few moments. She told me she's I'm German Lutheran. Uh, she, brought, she spoke broken English, uh, uh, more German than she did English. Here's a lady in her 80s, never been in an apostolic church before in her life. She began to sit there, and I noticed that uh, something was happening to her. The next night, uh, she came back to church uh, to the prayer meeting, and, and then the following Sunday night, we took her in the tank and, and baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Before I put her down, she lifted her hand and said, wait, wait a minute, I want to say something. She said, you know, my son Terry is a very persuasive individual. He was a big football player from the University of Missouri. He weighed 345 pounds when I baptized him. Six foot four, five, big guy. She said, he brought me out here, but I'm not, uh, I'm not being baptized because of Terry or anybody else. She said, I guess I just, when I saw all of these people, and it seemed like every time I opened my Bible to read, she said, I just, just some scriptures jumped out and told me that this was right. She said, I'm being baptized in Jesus' name because... I realize I need to be. She went home. She didn't receive the Holy Ghost, but she went home. And and uh, when she went home, uh, she got her Bible out, and she began to read the 23rd Psalm, but it didn't come out of English. She got her German Bible out, and she began to read, and it didn't come out German. And uh, she closed her Bible, and about 45 minutes to an hour, she just spoke with other tongues as the Spirit gave the utterance. Praise God. All coming out of just a prayer meeting. 
just a prayer meeting. I don't know what you expected to hear at a Sunday school convention. But listen, you need to put life in your teaching and life in your very being. This is not to say that I feel that all of you are backslidden. I don't believe that. I believe for the most that people here are on fire. But I'll tell you, it's the people who are on fire that likes to hear preaching like this. Because this is the very thing that will keep us on fire. It's the very thing that will save our souls. Would you believe that Bob Puckett came to one prayer meeting here in that, that prayer meeting we were having to take his wife and his daughter and his young son out? And he said, I'm going to take them home and I'm going to beat them. Now, all of these happened within three days. And he walked into church and he was dog drunk. And a young 15-year-old girl got up from the prayer meeting and went to the drinking fountain and Bob was standing out there. And Bob says, where is Patricia Puckett? And Connie said, she's in, in the church praying. He said, you go get her and get her out of that place. And Connie went to open the door. And she said, Bob, come here. And Bob walked. She said, there she is down there. You go get her. And Bob says, I'll go get her. And Patricia was standing, or she was seated right flat down, Chinese style, by the altar. And Bob walked up behind her. And you know what she was doing? She was praying about her own life. She said, God, you know I'm not an effective witness. And I want to be. And Bob sees so many things in me that are not Christian. God, I feel so bad about it. And I don't, want to, I don't want to be a bad example. Make me and Brenda and Norman everything that you want us to be. Use us, oh God. We want you to use us. She was one of our Sunday school teachers. And then she began to pray about her own deficiency. Bob dropped his head. He turned to walk away. He turned back and looked. He joined his wife at the altar. Some brothers gathered around her. We began to pray with him. The Lord sowed him up. We baptized him, and the Lord filled him with the Holy Ghost. Lift your hands right now, would you? Would you praise the Lord? Hallelujah. Revival brings miracles. I say revival brings miracles. I walked in the VA hospital about four years ago, prayed for a man by the name of Charlie Peckham that was given three days to die. He was eaten up with cancer. You know what happened? Charlie Peckham three days later walked out of the VA hospital carrying his own bags underneath his arm, declaring that God had miraculously healed him. He's a well, healthy man right now. But lying in the bed next to him was a man by the name of Warren Mickelson who had leukemia. 
Warren was about to die, he called up Charlie and said, Charlie, who was a preacher that prayed for you? Well, and a man by the name of John Grant and gave him the address and telephone number. Warren Mickelson called his daughter-in-law. She drove from nearby city and picked him up and brought him over to the church. A group of us were just kneeling down in the front of the church, praying. He walks in there. He said, Pastor, I want to be saved. He told me, he said, I'm a Lutheran. I've been going to the Lutheran church all my life. And don't know anything about this church, but I know what happened to Charlie Peckerman. I want to be healed too. We took him fever, brow, and all, baptized him in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Went back to the VA hospital. Knew he had to receive the Holy Ghost. Kept going down, 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 down. Went over the hospital. We taught him to search for truth. We went over the hospital. He said, pull your chair up pulled my chair up. He looked at me and said, John, call me John. He said, uh, I'm a member of your church. And I said, you are? He said, yes. I changed my membership. Because he didn't really know what a membership of our church really meant. He said, I changed my membership. Told my wife to change it. Now, you got to shoot straight with me. He said, am I going to die? I said, Warren, I'll say this. <clears throat> You're going to die. I don't know if it's from this sickness or not, but you'll die. One of these days, something will get you. It's appointed unto all of us to die. He said, you know, I need the Holy Ghost, and I'm getting weak, and I don't have it. I said, but Warren, you can receive it. He said, I can receive it. I know I can Went to the hospital a couple of days later. He had not received the Holy Ghost. He was in bed. They had filled him so much with morphine that he was out of his mind. And I stood by his bedside. And he said, Brother Grant, I'm going to receive the Holy Ghost. I believe it. I believe I, I need it. And I said, uh, Warren, I, I, I think the Lord will fill you with the Holy Ghost. You know, while we were praying there with him and walked out, a brother in our church said, you know, the Lord spoke to me and told me that Warren was going to be saved. He was sure weak. Sure weak. Really weak. I received a call bright and early the next morning by 5 o'clock. His wife said, Warren passed away. Now she said, I need to talk with you. So I said, okay. And she said, we want to have the funeral at your church because he was a member of your church. Really wasn't, but nevertheless, uh, I understood what you're saying. So I don't know anything about your church, but I respect Warren's feeling for you and feeling for the church. I felt so bad in my heart, and his brother says, "I know the Lord." Tom said, "I know the Lord told me he's going to be saved." I don't dying. Here's a uh, wife. While we were talking there, she just casually mentioned something. She said, "I want to tell you something." She said, I don't know if this means anything or not, but I just feel like I need to tell you. You know, a very strange thing happened. She said, uh, uh, Warren had not spoken for hours, and they were constantly by his bedside. And all of a sudden, he woke up. His eyes were real glassy, and he raised up in the bed. We didn't think he had enough strength. He put out his hand, and he said, No, 
you can't come and get me. No. He said, I'm not ready. No. She said, then he just re relaxed on the bed with his eyes open. And she said, you know, I don't know what this is all about. Maybe it was the morphine. I'm not for sure. But he started to speak in a foreign language. The strangest tongue I ever heard. She said he spoke like that for quite a long time. Then he raised up and he held out his hand again. He says, you can come get me. I'm ready now. Oh, do you think that God wants revival? that it should perish. And he's looking down upon you right now, brother, and you right now, sister. And if there's any way that he can make you better and more profitable than what you are now, he's going to start pruning on you. When Jesus spoke of the tree, they were pruned. They had fruit, but they were pruned that they might have more fruit. And they were pruned again that they might have much fruit. And this is the day in which God is pruning us for much fruit. I just feel right now that the Holy Ghost would want you to just bow your heads in front of you thinking of nobody but yourself. Would you start calling upon God right now and asking God to come and help you? Oh, God.
there's no time like the present to make a personal altar where you are. so easy to crucify someone else when we're the one that needs to be crucified. Invite the brethren to my right and the sisters to my left. Let's come and gather around the front. Let's just stand, gather in as close as you can. Let's have a season of prayer. Hallelujah. 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 I tell you what, this would be a great time for us just to pray for one another. Maybe reach over brother to brother, sister to sister, and just begin to pray, oh God, help us unite. Help us to draw closer. Gather right on in. Help us to do more.
Hallelujah. Thank you, Brother Grant. Appreciate the beautiful spirit. Words of truth that you spoke to us tonight. Appreciate the spirit of conviction that God poured in our hearts. Hallelujah. We would encourage everybody that can come back in the morning to hear Brother Grant. Please come. There'll be a devotion service starting at 9.45. And then the first class will be starting at 10. I'd be very happy if Brother Grant would just go ahead and take from 10 to 12 and uh, just minister to us as he has tonight. Hallelujah. Amen. I want to say I appreciate Brother Maynard's burden and desire and concern to organized and put forth the effort to bring this sectional seminar to us. Appreciate the section and their work and their labor for God. God is just really pouring out His blessings in section 11. We're thankful for it. Hallelujah. Ask Brother Coons if he'd come out here and dismiss us a word of prayer. Brother Coons. Our Lord, and we're thankful, Lord, for what our heart has felt tonight. We're thankful for your word, O oh God. Stirs us up, O oh Lord. Prunes us, O oh God. Lord, help us not just to hear the word, but be, be doers of the word. Go with us to our different homes. Protect us on the highway. Bring us back to the house of God and Mars. Be with each and every one of us and we'll give you the praise in Jesus' name.